my name is Liz Brailsford. I'm president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. And we have a very special program this evening uh, because of our two esteemed guests that we have with us. We are featuring Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, uh, journalists and co-authors of The Divider, Trump in the White House 2017 to 2021. Don't forget the years, right? Moderated by Jeffrey Engel, director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. Jeff Engel is also on our board, and we are very lucky to have him. So, Jeff, thank you very much for being with us tonight. I want to do a couple of things, and then I'm going to tell you about a couple of programs, and then we're going to get to what you really came here to do. But first, I need to uh, extend my gratitude to not only the Crescent Court Hotel, uh, I also want to thank our friends at American Airlines for their generous flight donations. American Airlines has been a great partner and supporter of ours for many years, and they help us get our speakers here. So they're a critical uh, partner of ours, and they're on our board also. Thank you to Cher and David Jacobs for your support and sponsorship of this evening's program. Your support means a lot. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Okay, also we have two of our newest uh, institutional members, NEC Corporation of America and also Lockheed Martin just joined us again. Uh, yes, yes, uh, last year, so thank you to Lockheed. We just had a board meeting just before this meeting, so I feel very amped up. First I get to see my board, then I get to see all of you. It's a great day. But I was telling them uh, we have uh, a net increase on every single membership level since the beginning of the fiscal year. That started on April 1, and I got to tell you, we work for every single one of those members. And if you are not a member of us yet, please do become a member. It means a lot to me. And it means a lot to our staff and our board and our community. Please join our engaged citizenry and uh, be with us. What uh, you bring is your participation, but you also help keep our doors open, quite literally. So we're very happy to have you new members. Please continue to join us. I'll make one more quick plug. To go register for a program and to become a member of ours, please go to our website at dfwworld.com. Dot org. It means a lot. Okay, and with that, I will welcome our vice chair and sponsor of this uh, program tonight, Dave Jacobs. Dave. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good evening, everyone, and let me add my welcome to this uh, evening's program and this wonderful crowd. I was second what Liz said. It is so good to see all faces and a whole lot of people in this audience that I have not seen in a long time, so thank you for being here. Uh, for you that don't know this uh, couple that I'm looking at right now, you're in for a very, very special treat tonight, and uh, for you that do know this couple or see this couple, you already know that. Our guests today are Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. They're journalists and co-authors of The Divider, and I'm, you know, Liz stole some of my thunder tonight, but that's all right. Trump in the White House, 2017 through 2021. I did not forget the numbers. Inspired by the controversial former President Trump. 
Peter Baker graduated in 1988 from Oberlin College, where he started his writing career as a reporter and editor for the student newspaper, which was probably the toughest job he ever had. <laughs> Since then, he has covered Washington for more than 30 years and is now the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times and a political analyst for MSNBC. Peter has covered five presidencies from Bill Clinton to Joe Biden. And during his first tour in the White House, Peter co-authored the paper's first story about the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. He published his first book, The Breach, Inside the Impeachment and Trial of William Clinton Jefferson through Scribner. Longest title I've ever seen. Based on his coverage of the impeachment proceedings in Congress, he has reported on the Iraq War, Hurricane Katrina, the raid that killed Osama bin Laden, pandemic, the pandemic during the Trump administration, both impeachments, and the insurrection at the Capitol. Not to be outdone, Susan Glasser graduated from Harvard University, where she wrote for the Harvard Crimson. Susan worked for the Washington Post for about 10 years, editing the Post's Sunday Outlook and National News sections. In this role, she helped oversee coverage of Bill Clinton's impeachment, covered the wars in Iraq and, uh, and Afghanistan, and served as Moscow bureau chief with her lovely husband, Peter Baker. She was editor-in-chief of foreign policy until 2013. She joined Politico as founding editor of Politico magazine and continued as editor of Politico through the 2016 election cycle. She was most recently Politico's chief international affairs columnist. And not to be left out, moderating today's discussion, as Liz said, is our very, very own Jeff Engel. And we, as Liz said, we are so pleased that you are on our board, so thank you. Uh, we thank Jeff greatly for stepping between this uh, incredible couple and moderating the conversation this evening. Please join me in welcoming great American patriots, three of them, Susan, Peter, and Jeff, to the stage. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Thank you, Liz, for hosting and also for the wonderful board meeting uh, this afternoon. Uh, things are going great for the World Affairs Council, and I'm sure everyone here is enthused by the post-pandemic recovery and where it's all going. Um, in fact, just looking at, at a face of crowd, at a crowd of faces is wonderful uh, still at this experience. So uh, I have been looking forward to this book for a long, long time. Um, not as long as you guys, but it felt, you know, <laughs> felt that way. And uh, there is more in this book that any person could possibly hope to cover in 100 discussions. <laughs> so I want to focus for, at the very beginning on thanking both of you for your incredible journalism and for being voices that I know when I open up the newspaper, or actually don't open the newspaper these days, when I look at my phone, uh, these are words that I can trust and that these are words that really are informed. So I'd like to focus, if you, if you don't mind, on how your work as a journalist has changed over the time that Trump has come in. I mean, obviously, it changed your geography. You didn't stay in Israel. But more importantly, how do you think that being a journalist in Washington has changed over these four years, or maybe even more than four, with Trump in, as a centerpiece of American politics? Well, I. First of all, we want to thank you uh, and everyone here for sharing their time with us. Uh, and thank you, Liz, and the World Affairs Council. We're a big 
you know, fans and believers in world affairs councils all over the country. Uh, spoken to many of them in my role at, at Foreign Policy. And I have to say, it's, it, it is great to be back out in person. Uh, Peter and I, our last book, this is our third book together, our last book was a book about a Texan, and we didn't even get to come here. Uh, we did the entire thing. As you know, we wrote a biography of uh, Secretary of State Jim Baker, uh, the man who ran Washington. That came out exactly two years ago. And we did the whole thing from our living room, uh, you know, with our, our co-worker, as we, we refer to our dog, Ellie. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, but seriously, we are really glad to be here uh, and to be able to kind of share this journalism and this reports with people, in part because uh, it was inspired by our past as foreign correspondents and in some way all of our present in a, in a very different moment. Uh, you mentioned uh, that we had to come back from Israel. People here might not know the story, but it's a good starting point for our conversation. Uh, like probably most of the people here, we did not anticipate uh, that Donald Trump would win the 2016 election. In fact, Donald Trump did not anticipate that he would win the 2016 election, uh, as the book uh, points out. And, and, I, and in some ways, that foundational few months after he won the election was really uh, a key period in determining some of the, the chaos that, that later ensued. But for Peter and I, it was also a disruption. We had planned to be foreign correspondents again. Uh, and we had even moved, uh, Peter and our son had moved to, to Jerusalem to take up the New York Times Bureau there. And um, on the night of Trump's election, I was in the newsroom at Politico supervising the coverage. And I sent a message to Peter when they were going to wake up because of the time difference. And I said, well, two things. One, Donald Trump is going to win this election. Number two, you know, do you want to come back to cover this extraordinary moment in the American presidency. And sure enough, uh, a few weeks later, uh, the New York Times asked Peter to come back, and that's what we did. And we basically were to move into a whole new house and in some ways inhabit a whole new kind of reality in Washington. So I, I like to think in some ways that this is uh, a book of foreign correspondence in our own home, where Peter and I had spent most of the last few decades as Washington correspondents. But, but really, it's a story of a, of a different Washington, certainly than the one we wrote about uh, in, in the Jim Baker book. Yeah, I mean, uh, so uh, thank you also, Jeff, and thank you. Can you all hear me? Yeah. Up while they hear this out, but um, and that that would be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, okay, yeah, the whole on thing is important. Okay, there we go. <laughs> put, put she it can't down. bring me anywhere. Put it down. Um, yeah, exactly. So, you know, the 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 it, no question that journalism is different in Washington in a lot of ways. There, there, there are the practical ways and then there are the big picture ways, right? Practical ways would be during Trump's era, as Susan would tell you, she would come downstairs at eight in the morning and discover that I've already written two stories in my pajamas in the kitchen because Trump is like tweeting out a storm. You know, I would literally go to bed every night with this phone in the bed with me because you never knew when it was gonna start buzzing and he would start making some sort of news. And the news was sort of random, it wasn't predictable, it was totally out of the blue, and you'd have to suddenly write a story about it, and, you'd, you'd, and, you'd, and again and again and again. During the four years, we started you know, moderating how many times we would respond to these, these uh, tweet blasts, 
But at first, we did everything he wrote, pretty much, because it was unprecedented that a president of the United States would say and do some of the things he was doing and saying. The big picture things about why, how things changed, I think, is more about the nature of journalism at a time when we were under some assault, you might say, from the President of the United States, who referred to us as enemies of the people, who called us fake news, referred to my organization as the failing New York Times, who would tweet out specific attacks against specific reporters, all of which put you in a position of trying to ignore that, because it's not our job to be the opposition, which is what he wanted us to be, and to try to do our jobs the way we are supposed to do it, which is to report facts to be uh, you know, aggressive in finding out what's going on, to find out what people don't want you to know, and to bring those facts and context to, to readers. And so you're right, it's been a big time, a big change for journalism in Washington in a lot of ways. But on the ground day to day, what is it like in this White House? What is it like in Washington talking to an administration, or what was it like, I should say, past tense, what was it like talking to an administration that, as you said, saw the press as not just a for lack of a better word, typical adversary, yeah. but as a genuine pinata. Yeah. Well, look, I think Peter pointed out, uh, to a certain extent, there was a large amount of political calculation involved in it. And you know, you'll see that, that Trump and uh, his views about the media, his interactions with it, uh, are really characters in the book in some important way. Uh, because Donald Trump, uh, all presidents, of course, uh, our media presidents, uh, and in the 20th century, right, we had uh, FDR who, you know, brought us the the radio address. Uh, we had Ronald Reagan, the master of television. We had, uh, you know, John F. Kennedy, who arguably used, uh, I believe, today is the anniversary of the uh, Nixon. Kennedy debate, no. which I know because your fellow historian, Michael Beschloss, is a great tweeter of historical pictures. And today is the anniversary of the Kennedy-Nixon uh, television debate. Uh, Donald Trump, even in that context, right, he certainly will be remembered uh, for not only his uh, uniquely acerbic views about the, the press and obviously being called enemies of the people to, to journalists who spent four years crisscrossing the former Soviet Union. Uh, the term in Russia, uh, enemy of the people, vrag naroda, it means um, it's the actual sentence that was used uh, in the Stalin era to condemn millions of people to the gulag. Uh, Donald Trump might not have known that when he started calling uh, the press the enemies of the people, but he was certainly told that again and again and again. It was a very purposeful effort to discredit uh, a potential rival source of power. And in fact, we recount the, the time that Leslie Stahl actually asked Donald Trump, why do you do this? Why do you, you know, set us up uh, as your enemies? And he was very uh, transparent about it. And he said, well, I do that so that when you report something bad about me, no one will believe you. Uh, you know, <laughs> Trump often has not hid his motivations. Uh, but again, to the question of what was it like to actually work in this environment, the other thing about Trump, though, in addition to the sort of caricatures, was his obsession with the media. He defined his job in a different way than I think any president in the history of the presidency. He exploded the normal presidential schedule. Uh, to me, that was some of the more fascinating reporting and writing in the book. Uh, he did not have, he did not want to have the highly structured presidential meetings that have become commonplace in the Oval Office. Uh, he basically colonized 
the private dining room off of the Oval Office and turned it into his own private media bunker. Uh, and he spent, according to his advisors, something like four to six hours a day watching television, uh, tweeting in real time about it in a, a sort of real-time feedback loop uh, that, again, of course, is without precedent. Uh, one White House advisor told us uh, that they considered Trump to be like the character Mike TV in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Do you remember in the movie the little boy, the little American boy who is obsessed with television and he sits there and watches it all day long and he asks Willy Wonka to transport him inside the TV? Well, to this White House official, that was how Donald Trump defined the job of being president of the United States. So what do you think his actual, what did he think his job description was? Because one of the things that comes through in the book is a shocking lack of agenda uh, yeah. for Trump, both on the campaign trail and then when he's in office. And as you put it, he's putting four to six hours a day into watching television. Is he just focusing on how he's being portrayed? And is there a policy agenda that he equates to his own popularity no, in some he way? Just, he just loved, he just loved the television. He loved to be able to take out his phone and say to an aide, watch this, click, 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 click. And then boom, like a minute later, right, CNN or whoever, Fox had it there. Suddenly the Chiron changes, Trump, colon, whatever it was he had just tweeted out. He loved that. He loved to be able to control the conversation. He loved to be able to dominate it. Other presidents, you're, the president you have written about so masterfully, George H.W. Bush, other presidents try to be disciplined in their interactions with the media in order to make sure their message was coherent and what they wanted to say and they didn't like to get off message. Trump didn't care. He'd throw out anything he thought about, anything he saw on Fox and Friends that morning, something that captured his interest. And he, he wanted to be all-consuming in terms of the media. As for an ideology, the truth is he didn't have a real ideology. I mean, he's... He had been a Democrat. He had been a Republican. Been a Democrat again. He was a member of the Reform Party, and then he became a Republican again. He was for gun control. He was against gun control. He was for abortion rights. He was against abortion. He was all over the map because, in fact, he doesn't really have a core, you know, uh, set of philosophy. That's not his his his. That's not his thing. Mm -hmm. He has a certain worldview that has been consistent uh, about how America has been shafted by its allies how free trade deals are bad, how he's the only guy who can negotiate something good and everybody else who negotiated with other countries in the past screwed it up, right? But beyond that, he was very flexible in his ideology until he basically decided he was gonna be a Republican and that was a party he could make it manage to take over. Jared Kushner once called it a hostile takeover of the Republican Party mm -hmm. and he remade himself into a conservative in order to do that, but he didn't really come into office with a huge agenda to your question. Well, I guess, and maybe this is more of a statement than a question, I love your observation on it, it's always been striking to me that President Trump did not appear to appreciate that he could get his poll numbers up by doing his job better. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's funny because one of the things I learned to the point of, you know, what was it like to be a journalist in the Trump era in Washington, there was a certain commonality, more than you might expect, to what it was like to be a journalist covering Vladimir Putin's Russia mm. uh, and what it was like to cover Donald Trump. Because one of the things we learned was to set aside some of our expectations about how Washington is supposed to work, how, you know, what, what, what would a regular president Democrat or Republican do in a certain situation, uh, right? Regular presidents up until Donald Trump, they aimed for 50 plus 1%. The goal was to expand your majority. The book that Peter and I wrote about Jim Baker is a book, you know, about what it was like in the Reagan 
and the first Bush presidencies primarily. Their goal was to win a majority of the votes. Uh, and they pursued bipartisan policies at times. They were both partisan figures in election years, but because that was the goal. Uh, you know, do things that were additive. And that was the theory of politics that governed for most of our uh, adult lifetimes in recent years, arguably even somewhat predating Trump. That's changed. The age of uh, being able to persuade others who disagree with you is, is, is more or less over. Uh, and the age of uh, mobilization of your own troops has become you know, the dominant theory of politics. Donald Trump embraced that theory of politics, and he also has a personality uh, and a persona that is completely different than any other president, uh, not just of our lifetimes, but probably ever in American history. And you know, Trump's persona is that, and he, there's a very interesting moment in the book early on where he reveals this to a group of journalists from Time Magazine. He tells them, my secret is to be combative about everything. Uh, if there was not an enemy that presented itself, he would manufacture one. And I think you can see very clearly his presidency is the story of a series of conflicts, uh, many of them generated by him, in order to keep his energy going. Uh, and those were self-sustaining. They were not fundamentally in any way ideological, uh, except to the extent that his ideology was that uh, he should shift the focus and the institutions of Washington and of our democracy should be, in effect, personalized. Uh, and uh, that really is the story, I think, that we're telling in the book, is a story about a four-year-long uh, war on the institutions of American democracy, largely with a similar goal. And that's really interesting, because that applied to the Pentagon, but it also applied to, say, the public health bureaucracy of the United States in the context of the pandemic. Trump actually had a very similar playbook, uh, whether the conflicts he was generating were with the generals at the Pentagon or the lawyers at the Justice Department or uh, the public health officials at the FDA. So would I intuit from what you just said that President Trump would have disagreed with the advice of his medical officials no matter what the advice was? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, at some point, I think that's at some point I think it's probably true. Yeah. Yes. First of all, he 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 <laughs> he didn't care much for experts. He thought expertise was overrated, right? Remember? <laughs> no, he which did. is which is which is true. He did. He yeah. told us he is the smartest guy on all of these things. He knows more about war than the generals. This is a true statement. This is what he said. I know more. Yeah, about, there's a paragraph in the book that yeah, lists I know more all about the things. The, I know more about the war than the generals. Right? He never served, of course. I know more about uh, you know, economics, obviously, than the economics advisors. I know more about public relations than my public relations team. And I know more about even medicine and science. I was with him at the CDC at the beginning of the, at the, beginning of the pandemic. And we were down there. In this, and he was being shown around the CDC. He says, yeah, I'm really very smart about these things because my Uncle John was a professor at MIT. And like, <laughs> OK, that's great. I'm not sure what the relationship is. But good for you. That's great. He really you know, disdained expertise. He disdained expertise. And so when it came to COVID, when people told him, no, hydroxychloroquine is not actually a good drug for this particular circumstance, he says, you're wrong. Based on what? Because Laura Ingram told him that, right? And Laura Ingram had brought some sort of semi-doctors or whatever, some TV doctors onto her show. And then he would then call the Secretary of Health and Human Services and say, you got to get this 
out there prove. He said, well, sir, you know, we, we kind of have a process for testing these things and making sure they don't hurt people and all that. That was not what he wanted to hear. There's a, there's a very reveal, there's a, a thousand and one, a million and one revealing moments in this book. But again, focusing on, on you as journalists trying to deal with this unusual president, unusual being the only word I can safely use, uh, in your, I guess maybe it was your second interview after he left the White House, you mentioned that he begins the interview with a lie. Uh, first of all, What's that like? I mean, do you expect every president to begin every interview with lies? <laughs> but second of all, but don't forget the first part, but second of all, uh, he discusses, well, you should tell the story. He discusses the commercial uh, yeah. that he was asked to do or maybe not asked to do. You should tell the full story. But it never seemed to occur to him that he actually could make the decision himself. Yeah. Uh, now that I've given you a terrible rendition of that story. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, look, I would tell you that it was really uh, an experience uh, to interview Donald Trump for this book. First of all, interview is a misnomer, and I should say that. Uh, the bottom line is that Donald Trump is not, as, as Peter often very charitably puts it, he's not a fact witness. Uh, right? <laughs> you can't... Um, you can't uh, ask him a question and you know he's going to tell you the answer in a straightforward way. In fact, we found that speaking with him was you know was like a live action version of his now banned Twitter feed. Uh, you know, it was one long kind of ramble. There was no noun, verb, and period. Uh, you know, <laughs> let's just put it that way. You can't diagram a sentence that you know Donald Trump offers. And so he it was a little bit surprising that he wanted to have an interview with us at Mar-a-Lago. He's not, as far as I know, a big reader of my columns in The New Yorker. Um, uh, perhaps if he had been, we wouldn't have been invited there. But I, it was, of course, valuable, even though not valuable in the sense of gathering information. Uh, we spent about three and a half hours with Trump over the two sessions in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and you're right that the very first thing he said at the second interview in November of 2021 was a contradiction of what he said in the spring of 2021. That was very early on, right, uh, after the vaccine had come out. And so he told us when we first visited with him, uh, yes, the, the Biden administration has asked me to do a public service announcement. And we said, really, yeah, people in the government, absolutely, yes, I'm considering doing it. Uh, and remember, this was a remarkable achievement. Uh, and Trump had, had eagerly taken the vaccine himself. What he hadn't done uh, is been willing to expend any political capital with his own uh, vaccine skeptical base. Uh, but he told us that he was considering it. We thought that was interesting. So flash forward seven months later to our second interview. Uh, we were just sort of making chit chat with him at the beginning and we said, hey, whatever happened to that public service announcement, you know, you never ended up making it. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> we said, well, yeah, you, you told us that the, uh, you know, the, the government, the Biden administration had reached out to you and you were considering making, no, no, I did not, absolutely not. Where did you hear, hear that? I've never heard that. <laughs> we said, you told us that. Oh no, absolutely not. And you know, was Trump lying the first time? Was he lying the second time? Who could possibly know? Uh, it's obviously a revealing <laughs> moment. Uh, and it, it told you something too, by the way, that's a very interesting political observation. Uh, what had happened in the intervening few months was that uh, Trump actually had mentioned the vaccine at one of his rallies, and he'd been booed mm -hmm. by his own crowd. And I think that 
told us something that was useful. We got something useful out of that interaction with Donald Trump, even though it wasn't obviously a fact that could be printed in our book. And, you know, Trump is both the, you know, carnival barker leader of the Trumpists, but he's also, in a way, beholden to them and afraid a little bit of his base, afraid of getting away with them. And, you know, as you see over the last week, uh, this really sort of dramatic developments where he's moved even more in the direction of embracing uh, the QAnon conspiracy theorists, uh, you know, who's leading and who's following in this situation? Mm -hmm. Well, so segueing to who's leading and who's following, I'd love to talk about his relationship with Vladimir Putin. <laughs> That's a good segue. Very good. <laughs> so you covered Putin, obviously. Yeah. You, you both have written about him. And also, you know, Donald Trump, as you mentioned, claims the Helsinki summit, summit, I'm not sure, meeting, uh, get together. Yeah. Uh, the Helsinki get together of Vladimir Putin is one of his great accomplishments. Yeah. So help us understand how you understand this peculiar relationship? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, it, is, it is one of the still unanswered questions of President Trump and will be, I think, the subject of multiple books going on for years. People will come up with theories and come up with small pieces of evidence that will somehow prove this or that in their, in their view. I, I would expect to see a lot of books about that over the years. We don't pretend to answer the question for, in a definitive way in the book. I, I think we do, though, point out that while the Mueller report didn't find a criminal conspiracy, there was an extraordinary amount of contact between Trump's campaign and uh, the Russians during the 2016 election. It may not have been criminal or anything necessarily wrong, but it's still unexplained. And the affinity that he's shown for Putin is still perplexing. And we've asked, we asked a lot of people, we did 300 interviews for this book, Most, by the way, all after he left office. Nothing was held back during uh, he left office. We tried to go back and re-report and affect what happened. Mm. And we asked them about this. And like some people on his NSC staff says, look, you guys are looking for something more complicated than it really is. He just likes strongmen. He likes autocrats. He likes Sisi in Egypt. He likes Xi Jinping in China. He likes Erdogan in Turkey. He just likes these guys because he sees himself as a strong man, right? And he likes that. And I, it's true, I've been with him covering him. I was on Air Force One traveling with him once uh, back from a meeting with Xi Jinping where he was just waxing poetic about how, how great Xi Jinping was that he didn't have to have all these checks and balances in his system. If he wanted to put somebody to death for fentanyl, obese, they would be dead by the end of the day. They didn't have to worry about courts and appeals and, and you know, Congress and all these other things. So he, he, he was definitely admiring or jealous in some ways of these autocratic systems. Other people say, look, it's about the money. Not about politics, it's about the money, because in fact they did rely on the Russians for money when they were the family when they were in trouble, as, as they themselves said at one point. Uh, you know, when the American banks stopped working with them, they, they, they turned to foreign sources of capital. And that he wanted to, Michael Cohen, his former lawyer, turned uh, fixer on him, uh, turned against him, uh, said that he just really wanted to build a Moscow tower, and it really was all about that. That was just his, his driving ambition, and so he wanted to be nice to Putin because he wanted to build there, which is what he would do. But you know, we just never, you know, the, the Helsinki summit was so remarkable. Susan was there. Not only did he say basically he believes Vladimir Putin over his own intelligence agencies, I mean it just people back home in the intelligence agencies were flabbergasted by that. So it wasn't just the reporters in the room who said, wait a second, what did you say? It was Dan Coates, or a former Republican senator, former ambassador to Germany, former chief of staff Dan Quayle, no liberal, who was appointed by Trump as the director of national intelligence and watching this on television thinking, huh, maybe Putin really does have something on him. Mm -hmm. Mm 
that's what he thought. He had access to all of this intelligence, and more information than any of us will ever have. And he thought it was very possible that the President of the United States was compromised by the Russians. And he, that's what he told people. And, and, but we, one last anecdote on this, to the extent that it was a love affair or there were an admiration society, it, it often seemed like a one-way street. There's a meeting in Osaka, Japan, G20, where Putin and Trump meet on the sidelines. And Putin, Trump is doing his braggadocia thing. You know, they like me so much in Poland, they're gonna name a fort after me, Fort Trump. And they like me so much in Israel, they're gonna name a settlement after me, you know, Trump Heights, which is true, by the way. And <laughs> Putin has a number, right? Putin gets him, and he says to him, maybe Donald, they should just name all of Israel after you. <laughs> and it's this little jab, right? It's this little mocking of his narcissism. And it tells you something about how Putin saw Trump not in the same way that Trump saw him. So what was the reaction, I had not realized that you were there in Helsinki, what was the reaction within the press corps and the conversations that you had with other journalists, that you had with his staff at the time, in the moment of him doing that, uh, again, unusual thing? Well, unusual is quite a, is quite a word. Uh, you know, I think we should just, as a you know, level setting here, Peter and I, having covered so many presidents, I think one of the, the value that we sought to add was to try to help understand from the beginning of the presidency what things were really exceptional, right? Obviously, Trump is a disruptor. What part you know, was sort of nutty, but within the framework of our very partisan and divisive po politics? And which are the things that Trump did or would try to do that were really explosive or disruptive or just without precedent? Sucking up to Vladimir Putin without precedent. Uh, we have never had a president of the United States who was an open admirer of dictators and autocrats. We've certainly had uh, a history of American foreign policy that has involved uh, engaging with uh, some pretty noxious regimes uh, in the Cold War. Of course, we did so often under the guise of uh, combating communism. Uh, and you know, the greater good, I suppose, was the argument. But even then, certainly, it was inconceivable, uh, and not to mention politically uh, mm -hmm. perilous, the idea that any president would cheerlead uh, for a dictator. Uh, and so, obviously, that's without precedent. Being there in Helsinki, I was actually live on the set of CNN. Uh, uh, and I'd never done anything like that. I'm, I'm a writer. I'm a print person. I'm an editor. Uh, and they had invited me because of Peter and Maya's time in, in Russia. And I'm sitting there on the set with these television professionals. Christian Amanpour is next to me. Uh, and um, it was like somebody had kicked us in the stomach. It was absolutely like no one has ever heard a president of the United States say the things that we're just hearing in real time. And we have to somehow invoke that. You know? And Anderson Cooper uh, you know, was sitting there. He didn't say a word. The rest of us were sort of watching it and you know, kind of talking. He said not a word, and then they, they went right to him. And he said, this is the closest thing I've ever seen to a president betraying the national interest on live uh, television in a, in a press conference. It was really 
uh, a breathtaking moment. And, and for us, Russia hands, you know, Peter and I have been uh, following Russia for the whole two decades of Putin being in power. I think of uh, the account of our colleague and friend Fiona Hill, who at the time uh, was actually in the room for the broader meeting with uh, President Trump because she was his senior Russia advisor. And she has this great scene. I know she visited with you all when her book came out, but she has an amazing scene where she talks about it in her book. She's sitting in the room with the press conference. And it was so disastrous, she actually thought about faking uh, an illness or possibly like pretending <laughs> to faint uh, in order <laughs> to disrupt the whole event, uh, which would have been something. I wish she'd done it just because it would have been amazing to watch. <laughs> okay, I want to come back to Putin in a second, but let me drill down on, on your Anderson Cooper story. Uh, and I want to do so by reading a, a, one of the lines from the book. Now, this is only the first of 6,900 times oh. that I wrote in this book, I can't fathom this. <laughs> uh, so well, here's the sentence. That's the editor's fault. Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't he say, liked I, it. He I didn't liked say it. I couldn't understand it. <laughs> I said I couldn't fathom it. Uh, he did not know that Puerto Rico was part of the United States, <laughs> did not know whether Colombia was in North America or South America, thought Finland was part of Russia, and mixed up the Baltics with the Balkans. He got confused about how World War I started, did not understand the basics, and I'm going on and on and on. How do I declare war is one question he asked. Um, I found one of the most difficult things in my writing about Donald Trump was the number of times I would write a sentence and say, I cannot believe <laughs> my own sentence, even though I know that's the right sentence. Walk me through the reaction of having to, honestly, having to copy edit yourself during this, this period in, in real time. Because, I mean, when Anderson Cooper said, you know, you remember it, but to be honest, if, if somebody had said that about Dwight Eisenhower, that would be a whole chapter in the history books. Yeah. yeah. We don't remember. Yeah. No, I, yeah, that's a good question. I, I, look, he, he, we've got to remember he's the first president to come to office in our history who had not spent a single day in public office of the military, none. Now, that's okay. Other presidents didn't know things. I mean, our, our Dallas-based president here had some ge geographical issues when he first came to, to office. But they all tend to learn, right? I mean, President Obama got things wrong. He said his grandfather, uh, or great uncle, I forgot which, liberated Auschwitz, which wouldn't have been possible unless he was a member of the Soviet Army. I mean, they, you know, they get things wrong. It's okay. Nobody knows everything. Presidents are human beings, too. But what was different was, as one of Trump's aides said, he knew nothing about most things. <laughs> and didn't seem inclined to learn. You know, he didn't seem inclined to understand it better over time, right? And that, I think, is different. That, I think, is different than a lot of presidents. And I think that's, you know, important. Well, I, look, I, I also think that it was a sort of uh, ignorance by design, because it doesn't necessarily matter uh, you know, that you have memorized something or even that you read all your briefing books in advance. But Trump had a unique thing, which is that he didn't want to learn. And this goes to your point about expertise. Trump believed uh, that it wasn't important for him to know these things and that, in fact, he knew better than those who were trying to tell him anyways. Uh, my favorite one in that list, though, is the Baltics and the Balkans, because not only did he confuse the two, he actually did so in a meeting with the leaders of the three Baltic countries themselves. <laughs> but, I, I, but more seriously, though, I mean, that's the thing. I, it was a hard thing as a writer uh, and as a, you know, sort of aspiring, at least, historian 
you want to pull together the incredibly bizarre theatrics of this presidency, because of course, that is an important element of it. Uh, and we all experience that as well, right? This sort of constant like scandal that's displaced by the next scandal, uh, the crazy uh, array of like, you know, here's Donald Trump in a Twitter war with Denmark because he tried to buy Greenland. But then when we, and that happened, by the way, remember in the summer of 2019. But that's one of the stories that when we went back for the book, to learn more about it, we realized that it's not just a series of wacky or crazy anecdotes, uh, you know, and that it wasn't just theatrics and that, you know, behind the curtain, a la the Wizard of Oz, there was something more serious going on. Donald Trump actually wanted to buy Greenland for years. We just didn't know about it. He was told by one of his wealthy friends, Ron Lauder, uh, who he had gone to college with decades earlier, uh, that Greenland would be the real estate deal of the century. Uh, and when John Bolton first became national security advisor, he received, first Trump told him about it. He said, what do you think of my idea? And the great idea, huh? Bolton said, uh-huh, yeah. Uh, and then Ron Lauder came to visit him, and he volunteered to be a secret envoy to Denmark in order to negotiate the purchase of Greenland. Can you imagine? Uh, you know, instead of dealing with Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, you're dealing with that. He politely declined, but he had his staff had to uh, embark upon a whole process to try to satisfy Trump. Uh, they had to have secret negotiations for months with the uh, Danish ambassador to Washington. There was a whole memo with options produced. Uh, and then, of course, it all blew up in this kind of public scandal way. So, you know, there's some substance to many of these things that in some ways it actually portrays a, a more disturbing story than just a sort of an isolated series of, of Twitter feuds. So when, when his staff is confronted by these unusual moments, as you said. I should say, I, the word unusual is getting a lot of work yeah, tonight. Yeah, it is, yeah. It's, it's doing a lot of heavy I'm, lifting. I'm trying to be polite. <laughs> My mother's in the audience, so I can't curse. Uh, or when, you know, as, as you said, when Dan Coates starts to wonder, is the President of the United States actually compromised by uh, the Russian president. How does that affect your work as journalism? Do, do, did you find people within the administration kind of coming to you more to say, I need to tell you what's going on, I need to bear my soul, or are they embarrassed by what's going on? How does that affect the day-to-day the, the -day I mean, relationships? More in, more in the post-presidency, right? Yeah. Sometimes during the presidency, obviously, particularly when they quit. Um, but in the post-presidency, we had a lot more luck talking to people who might not have talked to us during the presidency because, you know, he was out of office then, and it was a time for them to try to reputation wash, right, themselves to justify their own decisions and their own actions, and a time to try to set the historical record straight. They, they know that books like this are going to be written, and that they would like to make sure their role in it is told accurately, or at the very least sympathetically. <laughs> accurately is not always the same thing. Um, and so, yeah, we, we discovered in, in doing these 300 interviews, a lot of people were willing to say things that they didn't tell us at the time. Mm. And the consistent theme, a lot of the, one of the consistent themes is how much worse it was than you thought it was. You know, let me tell you how bad it really was. You guys thought it was bad, let me tell you. And they literally had, you know, so you literally had John Kelly, who was the second chief of staff to President Trump, it turned out, uh, and we learned from other people. In other words, not everybody talked to us. Just want to be clear on this, and they don't always tell us the things that we found most interesting. We sometimes found out from other people who they talked to. But the, he told people 
that he bought a book about Trump's mental problems in order to try to understand him. This is the White House chief of staff. Imagine Jim Baker doing that, right? You can't imagine that. He bought a book, it was by 27 psychiatrists and psychologists and, and mental health workers analyzing Trump's narcissism, narcissism and other, you know, what they presumed to be mental conditions. And, and Kelly told other people it was a very helpful thing because it helped him understand him better. Other cabinet secretaries told us uh, after, again, he left office, not while he was in office, but after he left office, that they used to debate this among themselves. Is he crazy, crazy, or just crazy like a fox? And they didn't always know. And they sometimes you know, had a disagreement about that. So these are things, as journalists, you learn after that, which is why you do a book like this. People sometimes will say, why do journalists, you know, they're just trying to profit off this or whatever. No, the reason is to bear witness, to get this on the record as early as you can, while memories are fresh, when people are more willing to talk before they you know, move on, and try to create a first draft. This will not be the last Trump book on his presidency, but it has to be the first one because you have to have a starting point, and we think it's an important thing to do. Yeah, and I just want to add, because it's so important, a lot of the reporting, going back to episodes that we knew about already, like Greenland, we found out a totally different story than the one that we thought that we knew. And the big picture story that we found out, you know, is that it was a much closer run thing than we understood even at the time. And that applies not only to January 6th and to the actions after the 2020 election, uh, but in general, the, the sustained nature of the challenges to institutions uh, really was not fully clear to us. And you know, I'm sure that historians will be writing for decades more books about uh, the Trump presidency, just in the same way that people are still doing new histories about Watergate and, and Richard Nixon. You're going to see more and more of this. But uh, you know, that phrase even, it was a near-run thing. Uh, both John Kelly used that uh, in regards to how close the United States actually came to pulling out of NATO under Trump. We knew that Trump was opposed uh, to NATO, that he had called it obsolete as a candidate. We knew, I had reported at the time, actually, when I was a columnist for Politico, that even in the summer of 2017, he had uh, you know, refused uh, to give a speech in which he endorsed NATO's traditional Article 5, all for one, one for all defense. Uh, but we didn't know. We didn't know that there was a real sustained effort by Trump again and again and again that his advisors in the first couple years actually were, were practically body blocking him in order to stop him from withdrawing from NATO. Uh, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, we can talk more about that, but uh, you know, he considered uh, what happened after the 2020 election and January 6th to be uh, almost akin to what he called a Reichstag moment, uh, you know, which is to say the provocations that were created by Hitler in 1933 in order to justify uh, the full takeover of Germany. And uh, he also referred to it uh, to others as uh, a near-run thing. This is a very famous phrase uh, in the military uh, because it refers to what Wellington said after just narrowly beating uh, Napoleon uh, at Waterloo. And uh, I think, you know, for me as a journalist, uh, all of this stuff, as you said, it, you have to, the suspension of disbelief uh, in order to write some of these sentences. How can it be that the President of the United States doesn't know that the power to declare war exists in the Constitution as a, as a congressional responsibility? But it was really summed up for me in probably the biggest news story 
that we found in the book, which was Chairman Milley's uh, resignation letter that he did not send uh, in June of 2020 uh, after the infamous Lafayette Square photo op, and he was shown in his fatigues there. It was you know, seen as a, a real effort to politicize the military. Milley considered resigning. Uh, it was a great moment of humiliation. Ultimately, he chose to apologize and to fight from the inside. But Peter and I obtained a copy of the resignation letter that he wrote. And I'll quote some of the things, because I, I think it's really still blows my mind. Uh, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, a very nonpartisan figure, uh, and frankly coming out of a military tradition that, that worships uh, uh, the idea of the apolitical military in our, as, a, as a key part of our constitutional system. He wrote that Donald Trump was, quote unquote, doing grave and irreparable harm to the United States. He wrote that he was, quote, ruining the international order. He wrote that he believed, after working uh, as his hand-picked chairman, uh, that he had come to the conclusion that Trump did not subscribe to many of the ideals and principles uh, for which we fought in World War II. Um, to my knowledge, there's never really been uh, a document like this that has become public. Uh, and it, it is a sign of a grave crisis in our country when uh, the leader of our armed forces believes that the greatest national security threat to the United States is not from Xi Jinping and it's not from Vladimir Putin, it's from the president. Some sentences should be savored. <laughs> um, or, or what's the opposite of savored? Uh, I know I'm supposed to move to question and answer, but I got one uncomfortable question for both of you. Hmm. Uh, I should go to Susan then. Okay. <laughs> we take turns, so it's your turn. <laughs> so you interviewed 300 former administration officials or Republicans, uh, most of whom told you things that were not complimentary to the president. If Donald Trump were to win the Republican nomination in 2024, how many of those 300 would vote for him? Hmm. That's a great question. Now, not, not, all, not all 300 were necessarily people who work for him. There are some people on the outside, but the, the dominantly the, the 300 were people who worked for him in some fashion, other Republicans or public servants. Um, I think we interviewed a few Democrats but, you know, in Congress or something. But you're right. I think the truth is the sources for our book, the people who talk to us, are the people who work with him the closest and were the most concerned. And I would say the vast majority of the ones that we interviewed would not vote for him. Yeah. Absolutely. But some would. Bill Barr has already said he would vote for him, not for the nomination. He doesn't want to win the nomination. He, thinks, he does think Trump is dangerous. He does think Trump shouldn't win the nomination. But he said publicly, if he did win the nomination, he would vote for the nominee of his party, just like Mitch McConnell said that. Neither one of them wants that to be the case. They do not want him to be that. But it is interesting that they're not willing to break with him in a general election. Um, not to say they have to de vote for a Democrat, but even to vote for, as George W. Bush did, you know, an independent or a write-in candidate or something like that. They're not willing to go that far. Well, and I think that, in a way, is actually the story that we're telling. Uh, because if it weren't for uh, that belief in partisanship uh, over almost all other considerations, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We would not be in the situation that we are in this country right now. Because again and again, you've seen testimony uh, on the record. Bill Barr's written an entire memoir uh, in which he talks about a president who is willing to pursue baseless claims 
of voter fraud and to you know, essentially uh, push a fraud on millions of Americans uh, in order, in service of his own ambition. That's Bill Barr's view of Donald Trump. And yet uh, his desire to remain a viable Republican has trumped that, uh, you know, forgive the, <laughs> the phrase. It's really, it's a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable thing, and it tells you a lot about the supremacy of partisan considerations. Uh, it's a story about uh, the Republican Party and, and its takeover by uh, the cult of Donald Trump. Subject of your last book, James Baker, you mentioned, I think, in 2000 that he did vote. Have you asked him who he, if he would vote for him again? We haven't asked him that. He did vote for Trump in 2016 and again in 2020, even though he told us again and again that he thought he was crazy. That was his word, crazy, not ours, nuts. That was his word, not ours. Um, he disagreed with Trump on so many things, on the value of alliances and NAFTA, which actually the Bush and Baker team had helped get started, and so many other things he thought was, he just, he was, every time we would interview Baker for our book and Trump would come up and everybody in the conversation and he would just kind of like shake his head, I don't, you know, he didn't understand what this guy was doing or why he would do the things he did, and yet he voted for him twice. And we always pushed this question, okay, then you don't approve of him, so why would you vote for him? And the answer was always, basically, I'm a Republican, you know? I, he, would, he wasn't my choice for nominee, but if he's the nominee, I'm a Republican. And it says something because, Again, the subject of your couple books, George H.W. Bush said publicly, as did George W. Bush, both Presidents Bush, that they were not going to vote for, for Trump. And if anybody had a good excuse, therefore, to not vote for Trump and go along with the Bushes, it was certainly Baker, who's very close with the Bush family. But he couldn't bring himself to do that. And I think it does, to Susan's point, bring help explain the, 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 the conundrum or, or the position that the establishment of the Republican Party has put themselves in, and which is more important for the nominee of their party. Uh, even if they think he is, quote, crazy or nuts, to use the phrase that he did. So I'm, I'm getting in deep trouble with our host because <laughs> you guys are so interesting. I keep asking questions, and I'm supposed to be turning it over to the crowd. So if you have questions, please raise your hand. Um, I see, um, yes, a woman right there. Put your, you put your hand up first. Thank you. So what do you think, if any, will be the long-term impact of his style with the media for future presidents? Even it seems like Biden has a little bit different style than maybe he would have if it hadn't been for Trump. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that is a good question. Uh, I think that it's, it's certainly both uh, in the Republican Party, but more generally in our politics, we're not going back to a status quo anti-Trump, right? Uh, and certainly part of that is stylistic. Uh, you know, he has blown through some of the traditional constraints or guardrails in American politics. And, and there are some things that all presidents crave, uh, you know, Democrat or Republican, not just more power in the presidency. But they don't like to talk to journalists, like Peter said. Uh, the institution of the presidential press conference was probably already uh, dying a long, slow, and annoying death. Uh, you know, Trump and now Biden are hastening that for probably very different Reasons and and you know the shifts in the media themselves uh, predated Donald Trump. He used the media in a particular way. But I, I remember when I was the editor of Politico magazine, we ran a whole very interesting piece about how Barack Obama, uh, you know, had a very different approach to the media and increasingly relied upon conversations with friendly niche venues. Uh, you know, he was even doing like what did he do? Like you know, podcasts with uh, you know a car guy. Uh, kind of stuff. And um, 
you know, I think that's the future is narrow casting uh, or seeking favorable audiences, right, rather than going for a general public uh, that no longer really fits under one umbrella, yeah. uh, unfortunately. I, I see Biden is anti-Trump in terms of his accessibility, though, to the press, right? Trump was accessible yeah. all the time. He never stopped talking to us. No matter how much he criticized us, he loved talking to us. And by the way, as reporters, we like that. <laughs> We're all for that. And actually, you know, we complained about the Twitter feed. The Twitter feed actually was yeah. a really interesting window into what he was thinking, into his mindset Absolutely. that we haven't had with any other modern president. And in some ways, there's a value to that because he didn't try to hide what he was thinking. When he wanted the Justice Department to prosecute his enemies and forgive his friends, he told us that very openly. You know, there's no mincing around about it. Biden is the opposite. Biden these days doesn't talk to us. He's never given an interview to the New York Times since he became president. Um, at least the news side, I think he may have talked to one of our columnists. Uh, he hasn't talked, I believe, to our friends in the Washington Post or in the other newspapers. He does very few news conferences or, um, or, or, or uh, uh, interviews. And part of that, I think, is because they're afraid that he'll, he'll slip up. Uh, no, I think it's true because he's gotten in trouble occasionally when he has. And he, by the way, is a pretty undisciplined speaker in general. He's got a whole history of that. That's, mm -hmm. Trump isn't the first guy to be undisciplined with the media. Biden, I think, perfected that long before Trump came along. But um, he doesn't vilify the media. He snaps at us. He can be nasty to us. He can actually, he can be very quite, quite you know, uh, jabby with a reporter who asks a question he doesn't like. But I remember one time, for instance, when he was in Europe meeting with Putin, in fact, he said something nasty, I forgot, in reaction to a question that Caitlin Collins from CNN asked. And it was unfair to, to Caitlin. She asked a perfectly good question. Uh, and then later that day, about an hour later, under the wing of Air Force One, where the pool was waiting for him, he came over to specifically apologize to her for doing it. Because he understands that there's a value to a free press, even if he doesn't like us, even if he's mad at us, even if he, even if he thinks we're jerks. He understands that the free press has a role in our institution. That's the difference. I know that uh, Liz is going to do a much better job of this here in just a moment, but I want to thank the two of you uh, for this evening. It's been an incredible evening, an incredible discussion. The, the platform that you guys have to talk about these things is just simply incredible. And Mr. Engel, uh, I want to thank you. What a great job of moderating this. You know, these are this is a tough crowd here, these two right here. Uh, so I just wanted to thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Do I have time to keep it? Uh, sir, thank you for those words. The anecdote of Mr. Kelly illustrates that the synthesis of everything you have said is that this man is absolutely mentally ill. And I think that the, I don't like this term, but the mainstream press did not early enough, and it became more of an issue in 2019, make the point that according to any reasonable assessment, the man is so far off the spectrum of mental normality that it was, that itself was a, a fact that was irresistible and it should have led to invocation of the 25th Amendment. At some point, certainly it never got invoked, it should have led to it. And I, this is an uncomfortable rhetorical question. Was there a, at the highest levels of major publications, was there a sense that America was still so anti-psychiatry or 
uh, or had a point of view about uh, uh, mental diagnoses that that fact, that central fact of the entire experience was something that they would not write about, even in editorials. Let's close it up. All right, you know, I, I, I'm glad, I'm glad this, is, this is an important question. It doesn't necessarily have a clear-cut answer, but actually we chose to write a whole chapter of the book, uh, and we located it exactly when uh, the questioner suggested in the summer of 2019. We, we have a chapter called The Summer of Crazy, and we tried to grapple, because it was actually a public issue uh, at that time more than it was at any other point in the presidency, and we tried to grapple uh, with this question of, um, you know, what does it mean uh, in our politics to have uh, a leader of the country who many uh, consider to be uh, a rogue president, to be unsuited uh, in some chronic way to the job of the presidency. The 25th Amendment first was raised, according to our reporting and that of others, uh, within weeks of Donald Trump coming into office by some of those who served in his own cabinet, in his government. Uh, this would come up at various points, but actually what the Trump presidency revealed was uh, a weakness in that amendment. It really was formulated in the wake of JFK's assassination uh, to cover a temporary disability or incapacity of a president. Jimmy Carter at one point actually tried, in his post-presidency, tried to address this issue uh, when the issue of Ronald Reagan's Alzheimer's diagnosis came up. And uh, Carter tried to get some attention to the fact that we really uh, didn't have a constitutionally viable provision. Uh, it's also basically functionally impossible in our very divided society, the, the, the difficulty of invoking the 25th Amendment for someone like Donald Trump who would have the ability to contest it mm -hmm. with Congress, it's even a higher bar than it would be to be have a president impeached and removed in a Senate trial. And as you know, no president has ever been impeached and removed in, and convicted in a Senate trial. The bar is too high. So as a practical matter, the 25th Amendment is basically useless when it comes to somebody with a chronic condition as Trump very likely has. And so, you know, again, we, we tried to look at it to do more reporting than we had been able to do during the presidency on this question. I think it is a very important question for Americans to think about. I don't have an answer. Uh, and you know, there's some very provocative uh, reporting in there. We quote at one point a public dispute that broke out between Donald Trump and George Conway, the uh, husband of one of Trump's senior advisors who obviously pretty famously broke with him. George Conway was obsessed with this particular point and actually at one point tweeted out the entire um, description from the psychiatric Bible uh, uh, of what narcissistic personality disorder is. He got and then a Trump, because any other politician would, of course, ignore that. Donald Trump got in a big argument with George Conway, simply bringing that fight to the attention of more people. But we print in the book that entire description uh, of what constitutes narcissistic personality disorder. I. I would recommend that you know you you look at that part of the book. It's pretty interesting. And the rest of the book too. <laughs> uh, Ray, do you have? A, oh, did you, you want me to go to you? Okay, I'm sorry. It's all you. Yeah. Well, very quick answer because we're wrapping up here. The question. 
The question is Steve Bannon. It's a good question. We can't let a good session go without Steve Bannon. Um, I'll tell you one anecdote that tells you a lot about that, which is that after the 2016 election when Trump won, and he actually was fairly gracious on election night, seemingly uncharacteristically, it was not his natural condition, and Bannon was mad at him. He mad at him, and he later told, he later said publicly in an interview, I think it was, he said, we didn't win this election to bring the country together. And that was his point of view. Now, he didn't last all that long, but that ethos, that idea, was at the heart of this presidency. And that's why we call it the divider. Not that Trump created the divisions in our society, but that he is a manifestation of it and an exacerbator of it, and, and Steve Bannon uh, encouraged that.